Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Title of my message is Strong Hope for the Future. Strong Hope for the Future. How many think that in the time that we live in, we need strong hope for the future? How many times in your life have you had strong hope for the future? Like, man, I'm really excited about the future and I'm excited about what God's going to do. And I have, my hope is just so strong. My expectation is so big. And um, God literally spoke this message because he was telling me that we don't have it. Something about the hour has taken away our hope and sapped it away. And God wants to restore it, proper hope in our future, strong hope in our future. Hallelujah. All right, I'm the only one. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, all right. There's more with me. Good. (laughs) It says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Read it again. The law came so that transgression would increase. So the law... All these things that God expects us to do and all the things that God expects us to be, all the things that we need to fulfill to be righteous, the law came in, which is a good thing to tell us what's right and wrong. But when the law came in, what happened? It made us more and more and more and more aware that we can't fulfill it. And so when the law came, sin actually increased. It actually, we were more sinful than we ever realized. We were worse than we ever thought. (laughs) This is terrible news. The law came to make me feel the weight of my sinfulness, how sinful I actually am. But then it says, praise God, that when sin increased, where sin increased, how many think we're in a place right now where sin is greatly increased? And boy, that could be depressing. That could take your hope and just throw it away. It could sap all of your energy. It could sap all of your desire to do right because sin is increased, uh, trespass increased. And it says, but grace abounded all the more, or even more, or was much bigger than what uh, sin was offering. Grace has more to offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. I ask that you speak your word, Lord. Declare it in this place, Lord God. I pray that it would become a part of us. It would breathe in us. It would live in us, Lord God. Hope. Strong hope, Lord God. Father, right now, I just pray that your word would be ministered to every heart. Open every ear. Give me words, Lord God, that are from your spirit that give life and not death, Lord God. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. How many ever think uh, hope is actually something you grab a hold of, right? And your hope can be in a lot of things. How many think you could grab a hold of hope in your job? And man, you hold that hope in your hand and you say, man, all my hopes are wrapped up in my job. 
And it might give you a little bit of encouragement. It may give you a little bit of excitement. It may give you a little bit of solace. It may make you sleep a little better at night. But ultimately, your job can only give you so much hope, right? My hope is in my relationships, my family, my children. And boy, that's a good thing to hope in, right? And it can give to you such joy, such peace. But how many know when the relationship goes awry, the marriage goes bad, the child is rebellious, some of that hope and that peace that you had from that relationship starts to weigh on you. Uh, my hope can be in uh, an election. Oh, man, if we win this election, man, if we win this election. Oh, man, you, you know what? I've got such hope. And I'm not putting down any of these things. How many know family is a great thing to get joy from, to get peace from, to get... Uh, to be able to lay your head out at night and have peace and uh and 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 let me let me tell you a real crazy one. Okay, this is real crazy. How about a rock? Just a rock, a pet rock. Man, I got such hope in this rock. You say, man, that's crazy. How many have ever done that? Ever had a pet rock and 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 you well, I'm gonna read a story here, you might change your mind. The Carolina Gold Rush, which was the first gold rush in the United States, followed the discovery of a large golden nugget in North Carolina. In 1799, a 12-year-old boy named Conrad Reed, now remember this is the first of the gold rushes, right? Conrad Reed, a 12-year-old boy, spotted a nugget while playing in Meadow Creek on his family's farm in Cabarrus County, North Carolina. He took the 17-pound rock home and showed it to his father. However, gold was not commonly seen in that community, and the value of the nugget was not understood. The nugget was used as a doorstop in his family's home for several years. You're laughing, but you've never found a, a raw piece of gold. You say, well, it probably was shining and gleaming. No, it was raw, muddy, and dirty, and nobody had... Been used to gold in that area, right? So makes perfect sense. Make it a doorstop, right? In 1802, Conrad's father, John, showed the rock to a jeweler. Oh, boy. The jeweler took one look at it and realized that was no doorstop. That wasn't just a rock. He recognized it as gold and offered to buy it. Reed was still unaware of its value, the value of his doorstop. So he sold it to the jeweler for $3.50, equivalent to $62 today, which was approximately one week's pay for him as a farm laborer. So let me ask you, could you hold on to a rock for hope, a 17-pound doorstop, I don't even know what the value of a piece of gold that's 17 pounds is today. But here's the thing. It wasn't just a rock. That rock was hope. You say, well, how is it hope? Because they bought his farm over the hope of the rock. People came from all over the country to North Carolina. That's why they called it a gold rush. Because everybody had hope in what? The 17-pound rock. 
Shortly after they bought the farm from the family, they found a 24-pound rock. California began to find rocks. People came from all over the country to California because of the hope of what? The one little rock. And now I don't look so crazy, do I? How many would hope in a rock? I mean, you're thinking, oh my goodness, the hope that this thing brings. All the gold I could ever want. And everybody got gold fever. Everybody thought, man, if I could just have the gold, it would change my life forever. They sold everything they had to go to Carolina, to go to California, because there was a rush to find gold, because all their hope was in a dirty little rock that was somebody's doorstop. And so what does this have to do with church? I don't know. I just want to tell a story. I thought it was a cool story. I was in the prayer room the other day. And while I was praying, how many know when you're interceding for your nation and your neighbors and your family, how many know it could be, it could feel dark sometimes. It can feel depressing sometimes. It can feel, these are all the emotions you go through when you're interceding for the people in your church, the people in your family, the people in your nation, because you recognize all around you is sin. All around you is hopelessness. All around you, things are falling apart. There's a looming tribulation period that's coming on the world. And sometimes when you're praying, you're just full of desperation. You're like, oh God, look what's happening to my nation. God, look what's happening to my church. Look what's happening to my family. God, will you awaken? God, will you uh, bring light to my family? Will you bring the gospel to my family? Will you bring hope to this nation? God, how will you restore this nation? And boy, that's how I, I'm, I'm in there praying all the time, these things. And after a while, the enemy can start to work with you with hopelessness and desperation. And, and, and boy, I was sitting in the prayer room, and guess what I found? A nugget of gold. Now, don't be, don't be crazy like running in the prayer room looking for gold, okay? I don't want to cause a prayer rush. All right, But I was sitting in the prayer room and all of a sudden, something just came over me. And I want you to hear this. Because when you spend time with the Lord, He does things to you and you try to sort it out and try to figure out what, what it's all about. And so as I was just sitting in the prayer room, quietly seeking God, I mean, just you're, when you're always in a prayer room... You're always trying to be sensitive. God, answer the prayer, Lord God. Tell me what to do, you know. Lead me on how to bring hope to people and, and, and help me answer these questions. How are my family going to know you? How are they going to experience you like I did when I was their age? Let me ever pray that. I want them to have that experience in the presence of God like I did. And you're asking all these questions and you've got to be sensitive because the Lord will do things. And so as I'm sitting there, I find this nugget. And, and, and suddenly what came over me, and I'm just, you're saying, well, how dramatic was it? I was sitting there alone in this room in a dark building, and suddenly the Spirit of God came on me, and I started to feel hope. I started to feel optimism that's beyond any optimism that I could have on my own. And I started to feel confidence in God like I hadn't felt before. And... Suddenly, I was praying in the Spirit, and I was just experiencing 
like hope at a high level, confidence at a high level, like we can win at a high level, and everything I touch is going to win, and, and I'm not going to lose, and, and God's got this, and God's going to pour His Spirit on me, and, and just this spirit of, of, how many have ever had that come upon you where I just feel like I can do anything in God? And all things are possible. And man, just the Spirit was on me. And I was a little confused. I was like, Lord, how can I take that and make them understand that? Because it was a nugget. I mean, I grabbed a hold of it and there was hope in it. I mean, I looked at it like that gold piece of 17 pounds. And and it's like there's got to be more where this one came from. There's got to be so much gold in those hills that I'll never have to worry about money again. And, and, And the Lord gave me this nugget of hope. And he put it in my spirit, and he made me feel hope for America. He made me feel hope for my nation. He made me feel hope for my family, hope for myself, hope for my church. And he gave me a little nugget, and he told me there's got to be more where this came from. And I felt optimism, and I felt confidence, and I felt revival, and I felt uh, things breaking apart in the spirit, and I felt like this nation no longer losing but winning again. The land no longer going away, but the land unlocked and, and thriving again and a harvest again. And God beginning to move, and you say, well, man, I don't know, because you haven't held the nugget in your hand. There's despair, there's hopelessness, there's all these things. And... So I'm praying about this. God, what do I do with this? And God gave me this scripture in 520. He said, yeah, sin is increased. Everything's increasing. But he says grace, because of the sin, grace has increased even more. Grace became bigger. Grace became giant. Grace was a abounding, meaning like incredible amounts of grace are being given to us because sin has increased and darkness has gotten greater. And God says, grace is going to abound. And and that confidence in me was growing. And I was like, God, help me understand this. Help me understand. And so a lot of times when I'm trying to understand what the Spirit's telling me, I'll ask people that have been in the prayer room. Like if people are in the prayer room a lot, I'll say, what's God saying to you? What's God telling you? Eddie, I'll ask him all the time. Kevin, I'll ask him. Bob, I'll ask him. If you're coming out of the prayer room, I'm going to ask you, what's God telling you? And so the other day, I was talking to Bob, and I and Bob's back there somewhere. And I said, hey, Lord been telling you guys anything in the prayer room? Because I'm trying to understand something. I didn't tell him what it was. And he said, yeah, there's this scripture. And I was like, oh boy, yeah, tell me. I can't remember it right now. But I'm going to find it, and I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> so it sends me Psalm 85. And uh, and it was immediate. He came right back with it and sent it to me. And, and so in Psalm 85, I want you to read this because God showed me through this how he's going to bring revival. It's a four-step solution to revival. So if you would turn to Psalm 85, there's four sections here. And I want to show you these four sections because they're going to tell you a lot about how God is going to bring hope to this nation and to our home and to our church and how He's going to bring revival. Hallelujah. The first section 
it says, and this is all past tense, okay? I want you to get this. This is all past tense. The first three verses of 85. It says, you showed favor to the land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and you turned from your anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior. So look at the first three verses and you just see that whoever wrote this is saying that in the past you restored Jacob. In the past, you restored his fortunes out of the past. In fact, if you read this in uh, different ways in the uh, the Berean study Bible says, you showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored Jacob from captivity. You restored the ca- Jacob from captivity. So this guy is looking back to the past, and he's saying, God, show favor to us. And then he's saying, why? Because in the past, you showed favor to Jacob. Uh, the children of Israel were captive. Why were they captive? Because they were wicked. They were evil. They had done wrong in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord had seen that they had no desire for God. They pushed God out of the society. And it finally got to the point where God had said, okay, if you're not going to follow me, then I'm going to pull away from you. And how many know that's exactly what's happening to our nation? That's exactly what's happening to families. That's exactly what's happening even with churches. And so he's looking back and he's saying, this is how you did in the past. And so this is why I have confidence in the future. Because even though Jacob wasn't faithful, even though Jacob didn't do what he was supposed to do, even though uh, this nation was judged because of their wickedness, you are still a God who restored them after all of that. In fact, you begin. he begins with the kind of God that we serve. In fact, how many know that there was a man who was a prodigal son? This man was so wicked that he decided... Uh, He wanted his inheritance from his dead father. The only problem was his father hadn't died yet. Now, how many would be bold enough to do that? Give me my inheritance now. Uh, Son, isn't an inheritance given whenever you die? No, Dad, I want it now. You're dead to me. And this is what we do to God. We say, God, you're dead to me. God, I don't want you in my life. You're not a part of my life. I won't worship you. I won't serve you. I won't even stand up for the truth that you've given me. How many have ever known that we're all sheep that have gone astray? And this boy went away from his father. He went and lived in the worst place a Jewish boy could go live. He lived in a pig pen. He was filthy. He stunk. He ran around, the Bible says, with prostitutes. He spent all the money his father had. He had nothing left. He had nothing left. In fact, he was sitting in a pig pen looking at the slop that the pigs ate. And he said, you know what? There's no way my father would ever feed me this. He had no money. He had no food. He had nothing left. And he stunk like a pig's die. I mean, no, he stunk living among pigs, right? 
He comes back to the Lord. He returns. Eddie, you were talking about it. He returns to the Lord. Now, how would you treat that boy? How would you treat him? You dirty, little, stinking rat. You little sewer rat. You've been in the pigs. You stink. You cursed me to my face. How many think that he was pretty mean to his dad when he left? He did all these things to me. And some people think that's how God would behave. But they don't know him. See, Moses said, I want to see your glory, God. I want to see you. And he's like, I don't know if you can see me, Moses. Anybody that see me has died, but I'll cover you up in the cleft of the rock and I'll let you see me as I pass by. Now, we all have a vision of what we think God looks like, right? And we think, well, when Moses sees him, what's he going to see? Because Moses gives a description of what he's seen. And what he's seen was loving, kindness, mercy, goodness all passed before his eyes. That's what God is. And so when this boy, God let him go. He, he, he wept. He didn't want to let him go. He didn't want to take his blessing off of him. He wanted the boy to be blessed. How many know that? And when the boy left, there was no ability to have God's blessing. It was only cursing. And so the boy leaves, and the, and the father cries. The father knows the judgment that's going to come upon him. But the boy returns. And when the boy returns, the father sees him from a distance. Like the boy hadn't even came up, and he's, the Bible says he's rehearsing his lines. His lines are, Father, I don't deserve to be the lowest servant in this house. Lord, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve that. How many have ever uh, rehearsed your lines to your parents or to an authority leader of how sorry you are for what you did and you're expecting a reaction of anger? And before the boy could even see the father, the father already seen him. And the father, before the boy had ever got up to say his lines, the father had already slaughtered and told them to slaughter an animal for supper. We're going to celebrate my son. He had already told them to gather everything together. Let's celebrate the fact that my son was dead and now he's alive. Now he's back with us. And you notice the father wasn't angry. The loving, mercy, kindness, and goodness of God was showing. He's trying to tell you that when you left, I have no power to bless you. It's only cursing. But when you return, I am not, my anger will be, um, when you come back to me, I'll come back to you. And the Lord is already celebrating your return uh, before you ever even see him. How many know that? Isn't that awesome? And so in this scripture it says, Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored Jacob. You took away your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. And so what the psalmist is saying is, I know God wants good things for us if we will return. He's basing everything he's saying in this psalm on the fact that God is a good God, and God wants to bless. Church, right now, where are we at? 
We are a culture where sometimes churches, we're sometimes a nation that's rolling around in filth. I mean, we've ran from God. We've spent our money on everything that is against God. We've said everything that's against God. We're a filthy nation. How many know when you're trying to pray and God's judgment is on a nation, it's hard to pray because we only see us. And if all I see is the dirty boy that's rolling in a pig pen, hanging out with prostitutes, spending all his money on junk, then I'll think God will never restore this land. But if my first thought is not the boy and my first thought is the God, then I got hope. It's starting to well up inside of me. Because there is a God that is so loving and so good, He's intensely angry at sin. How many know that? He can't change. He has a non-negotiable agreement that I will return to you, you return to me. But the non-negotiable is, you can't have the world and have me. And the minute we return from the world to Him, there's loving kindness. But when we return on our terms, there's nothing but anger. How many understand that? God is a loving God. You say, well, why is He so angry at sin? Because He loves people. How many know that every sin has the result of damaging people? Every sin God instituted has the ability to destroy lives. How many know that? And God doesn't want to see lives destroyed. He doesn't want to see a nation destroyed. He doesn't want to see a church destroyed. God wants righteousness. He wants us to return to Him and live righteously. He doesn't want us to rebel. He wants to bless us. He wants to love us. He wants goodness. And uh, so the first verse is a picture of what God did in the past. Now we get to the second section. Second section says, in verse 4, Return to us, God of our salvation. Abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. You see this, they're saying, return to us, Lord. Return to us. Lord is waiting for us to return to Him. And they're saying, return to us. Well, what happened to God? Where did He go? And Isaiah is one of the best places to look. Isaiah 59 Verse 9, I want you to listen to this. This is 9 through 21. It's a lot of verses, but listen, this will tell you where God went. All right? It says, therefore, this is Isaiah 59, 9. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, we only see darkness. We hope for brightness, but we only walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who don't have eyes. We stumble in the middle of the day like it is nighttime. Among those who are rigorous, we are like dead men. We growl like bears and we moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. 
Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying of the Lord, turning away from God. We speak oppression. We speak about revolt. Conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth is stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. How many think that's a good definition of a society that's in a dark period of time? Like, we're struggling here, God. We don't know what to do. Everything is broken. Everything is falling apart. Everything looks dark and gloomy. There doesn't seem to be any hope. Doesn't seem to be any light. Doesn't seem any way to fix our families, fix our lives. Seems really depressing, doesn't it? And sometimes this can overtake a person. And they can get down and they can get gloomy and they can get dark and they can, you know, not realize that God, uh, and this is us purely looking at just us. Just looking at the boy walking out of the pig pen. What hope does he have? What hope does the boy have when all the conversation is about the sinful boy? It's not until you turn around and you see the happy father at the end of the lane saying, man, look, here is my son who I love. He's coming back. Then all of a sudden there's hope in that boy's life. But until you see the son, until you see the the father sees the son, he just has no hope. And so Isaiah continues on and it says, Truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw this. It was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, listen, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede for them. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. His righteousness upheld him. He put a righteousness like a... He put on righteousness like a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, I will repay. And then look down in 20, it says, A redeemer will come to Zion, and those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit will be upon them. My words which I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth, nor... Uh, from the mouth of the offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord. So the Lord realizes there's nobody to intercede that man is lost, man has no hope, man is dark, the world is dark, the world has no hope, and God says, I was looking for someone who would intercede. And you say, well, man, where does this hope come from? Where does this hope come from? Because here's what we do. We think there's hope for this nation. And the hope that we have for this nation is this little golden rock. My talent will change this nation. My politics will change this nation. My things, material things, will change this nation. And God's saying, no, there's one hope for this nation, and that is to see the Father. Because the Father is full of goodness. The Father is full of mercy. The Father uh, wants to do good, wants to be kind, wants to uh, reach down, and He wants to pull us out of the hopelessness. In fact, uh, Moses, 
learned this secret. When he seen God and he realized when he seen God, when he got through all the fearfulness of being in God's presence and he seen who God really was, he found out that God was good and loving and kind. So you know what this did to Moses? Every time he interceded, guess what he appealed to? In fact, at one point, Abraham, seeing that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah completely, even with righteous people in there. And you know what Abraham appealed to? Surely not, God. In fact, let me read what he said. In Genesis 18.24, it says, He's negotiating with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was very wicked. And he says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, Lord. Shall you not judge all the earth justly? Do you understand that these people who knew God knew that God wanted to do good? They were appealing to a God who loves people, God who wants to pour out His kindness. And you say, well, how are we going to get revival? How do you get revival in a nation that's wicked? How do you get revival in a nation where they're running as fast as they can from God? How do you get revival for a nation that when you flip on a television set, you see the worst wickedness you've ever seen all over the place? And the way that you do it is not by looking at us. The way you do it is by looking at God and saying, God... You said that you love. God, you said that you're gentle. You said that you want to pour out your grace. You said that you want your spirit to move in this nation, in my home, on my children. God, you want this for my family. So God, I'm asking you, send the rain. And God hears the intercession of his children. God hears the cry for grace. And you say, well, don't we get the grace when we've earned it? Do I have to earn grace to be poured out on my nation? Do I have to earn grace to be poured out on my family? Do I have to earn grace to be poured out on my uh, the world that I live in? And see, the problem is grace means unmerited favor. And the Bible said he's just looking for one person to intercede. He's looking for one person to call him out on his word. Call him out on his promise. Call him out on his, in fact, later it says, his, uh, his love that is steadfast. And see, a lot of you, as I begin to read steadfast love, you're not going to know what that means. Steadfast love means it's a love that never ends. It's the love that a husband has for a wife. It's the love that a mother has for her child. And when the righteous begin to pray, God's, in fact, uh, you don't love your husband or your wife or your child based on the fact that they merited it that day. Amen? Okay, I guess I'm the only one. I'm the only one, right? When you vow to be married to your spouse, 
You vowed to love them in sickness and in health, richer for poor, good or for bad. What if a marriage was fully based on your merited favor with your spouse? Like if you were good that day, you get love, but if you were not good that day, you get no love. What if it were like that with your son or daughter? That if they were good that day and did everything you said, you love them. And, and, and see, that's what God's talking about here is steadfast love. And when they pray for revival, guess what they appeal to? God, you made a covenant with us with steadfast love. And because of your steadfast love, you want to bring revival to our nation. And you say, well, what is revival? What is revival? What is revival? Some people, revival is an evangelistic meeting. It's like we're going to have somebody come in, preach, lots of people will get saved, and we're going to have revival. In fact, some people believe they know how to work it up. They know the things that need to happen, and if Chad would just do this, this, and this, we would have revival. It's a method to some people. How many know that? But you know what revival is? That's, that's actually a resurrection or awakening of the dead is what we're talking about there. Revival is actually where God pours His grace on His people and they fall in love with Him again. Only God can bring that kind of revival. And you say, well, why do so many people get saved during revival? Because God has reunited with His bride They fall in faithful, steadfast love with Him again. And when they do, they begin to do the things that are the heart of God, and people get saved. Amen? When the people of God begin to, the Spirit begins to be poured. In fact, I'll let the psalmist say it even better than I do. Listen to this. It says, Restore us again, O Lord God, our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Uh, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? And what he's appealing to here, these are questions he's asking that he knows the answer to. God will not be angry with us forever. God will not prolong this. God, you will revive us. He's saying that all through history, in fact, you could. I've, I've got 20 passages here where God promises to revive again, where God promises to cover sin, where He promises to turn rain around His anger. The psalmist is saying, yes, 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 and yes, you promise to do all these things because your favor isn't because of how good I am. Your favor is because of your steadfast love. And so we don't have to go in the presence of God and pray for revival and wonder if God wants to revive the church, wonder if God wants to pour His Spirit upon the church. He does, and He doesn't do it because of you. He does it because of Him. So when you're in prayer, what you need to be saying is, God, I know who you are. God, I know what you are. I know what you want. And it's not because of me. It has nothing to do with me. But God, you want to revive us. You want to pour your spirit out on this church. You want me to grow. You want my children to be full of the Holy Spirit. You want to bring revival. So God, bring revival. You just need somebody to intercede. God gave me that nugget of hope because He's he wants you to find it. He wants you to grab a hold of it. He wants you to have optimism for your nation. Some of you have already given up on your nation. Some of you have already given up on the darkness. Some of you have given up on your neighbors. Some have given up on your children. And you just say to yourself, that's just the way it is. 
just the age we live in. It's just the time we live in. It's just the darkness. Well, what happened to grace abounding when sin is at its worst? Church, I'm not ready to give up on my nation. I'm not ready to give up on my church. I'm not ready to give up on my kids. I am optimistic. I'm full of hope. Not because I'm good or not because I did something right, but because it's what God wants. His steadfast love. He loves us so much. He wants it for us no matter what we did. No matter how good of a Christian we are, God is steadfast in His love and He wants to pour out goodness. He wants a bright, hopeful future for this church, this nation, and our homes. How many know that? Hallelujah. Grace abounds. He goes on. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. And then He stops and He says, I will listen. I will listen to what God has to say. And so he begins to stop and he charges God. He says, God, you love me so much that I know you want to do this. And he says, I'll stop and listen because I know that's what you want. And then he begins to say more truth here. He says, okay. He promises peace to his people, his saints, so long as they don't return back to their stupidity or folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in the land. Do you hear that? He's saying the presence of God is always close to those who fear him. That means that if God has went away because of the wickedness of our nation, he's very close and ready to return if we'll just ask him. He wants to be kind. He wants to be loving. He wants to pour restoration. You say, why is the nation the way it is right now? It's just that slow step away from God. The more we walked away, the more he went away. You know, he's here, not moving, and we're here. We're moving farther and farther away from God, and God's saying, hey, you know what kind of God I am? I'm a God that if you will return to me, I'm eager to return to you. I'm eager to pour myself out in this land. And then he goes on and he says, um, Love and faithfulness will meet together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Wow. Some of you don't even know what that means, but you think it sounds profound, don't you? And it is. It's very profound. In fact, God is saying... It's amazing in the Bible, it talks about God blessing the land of Israel. And one of the most common things he said is the blessing of the vine, the blessing of the oil, and the blessing of the grain. And what the Jewish rabbis would teach is that basically we have seeds, we have ground, we have all these things, but they're worthless unless the rain comes. And the rain is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what's this agricultural stuff have to do with my church and my family and my nation? And the reason is because God is saying here that when I rain down on my people, when I stop withholding my grace, all I have to do is begin to rain down on people that love me and have came back to me. And when I rain down on the land, guess what happens? The seed begins to burst. The plant begins to grow. The fruit becomes abundant. 
and everything in the land becomes restored, and we're blessed because we have plenty. And what God is saying is, if you will return to me, I will turn on the water again. Have you ever had your water turned off for a while? Lord is saying, I'll open the valve again, and my spirit will begin to fall on you. And as my spirit begins to fall on you, those seeds of faith will begin to grow in you. All you have to, church, can I tell you something? All you have to do is get hungry for God. It's simple. You get hungry for God and you return to Him, you know, shut the world away, just get with the Lord, begin to grow in Him, begin to return to Him, begin to be hungry for Him, and something very spiritually supernatural begins to happen. Everything that's in you, every talent, every gift, all that fruit God wants to you know, deliver through you, it all begins to grow. You say, well, man, what happens when that begins to... Well, it says here that uh, faithfulness... Oh, I'm sorry, love and faithfulness. So that love is the word steadfast love. So God's steadfast love connects with your steadfast love. Now, what kind of marriage would it be if one had steadfast love and the other one didn't? And God's saying, okay, how about if your steadfast love for me connects with my steadfast love for you. Uh-oh, something's starting to happen now. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't hold anything you've ever done against Him against you, and He says, I just want your steadfast love to connect with my steadfast love. And so here's steadfast love and faithfulness meet together. Ooh. So now me and the Lord are connected And now I want to be faithful to the heart that God has given me for him. And God begins to fill you with his heart, begins to fill you with his will. Now, what happens when a human being who is a believer begins to be faithful to God? Things start to happen. We start to become revived again, don't we? And so love and faithfulness meet together, then righteousness and peace kiss each other. So righteousness is this thing that comes from God where it says, man, I want to do the right thing. I want to do what God wants me to do in my life. I'm not even, I'm not worried about myself anymore. I want to live for God and do what's right. That's what righteousness is. But why is peace kissing him? Why is peace kissing righteousness? Because before we were hostile toward God. The Bible says that we had hostility toward God, we had anger toward God, we had bitterness toward God, we blame God for everything, and now all of a sudden, we have peace with God. The war's over. I'm not fighting God anymore. I'm not fighting God in my life anymore. I'm not fighting God for all my problems. I'm not fighting God for the bad things in the world. I realize God didn't do that. And now I've got peace with God through Jesus Christ, and now peace It's kissing righteousness. Meaning now that I'm right with God, I want to do what God wants me to do. I can remember the day that I walked up and righteousness and peace finally kissed each other in my life. That was when I woke up and I thought to myself, I want to do good. I mean, no, that's a weird thing for some people. I can remember waking up never thinking about doing good for God. But now, because righteousness and peace have kissed each other, I want to wake up every day and do good all the time. I want to do good for God because I love Him, because I have steadfast love and I have faithfulness toward Him. And righteousness and peace are kissing each other. 
And man, what would happen if that, that spread through a whole church? What would happen to a church if those things became, began to come together? And says, faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. This is talking about a land where our faithfulness is springing up like a root. And the righteousness of heaven is looking down and blessing it. How many see this picture? It's awesome. And it says, The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. So now God is pouring His Spirit. Now remember who He's pouring His Spirit on. He's pouring His Spirit on this kid that walked out of a pig pen who was a filthy sinner. A person that wasn't right with God, had no ability to be right with God, had no ability to really even ask for God's blessing or God's favor. But God, and that's what we were. We're all sinners. We all came short of the glory of God. The law made sin increase because we couldn't keep it. And now all of a sudden we get a picture of the Father who loves me even though I'm a sinner He pulls me in. He celebrates me. He loves me. He doesn't hold it against me. And now he's embracing me. He's covering me. He's taking away my sin. Now he's causing faithfulness and steadfast love to rise up in me. And now righteousness and peace are kissing each other. I want to do good. And now fruit is beginning to grow out of this person's life. And so now all kinds of fruit... Just imagine if I had a hundred people in this church that were bearing fruit. That their desire when they got up in the morning was to to work together. In fact, uh, I wrote down some of the things that happened from this psalm. Five results of this psalm. Psalm 85.10 says, Faithfulness, love, and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace or kiss each other. Number one, people start living right. Wow. Isn't that something that this boy realizes how bad the world is and comes back to his father? And to see that kid now wanting to live right? And so one of the results of this is that we have a desire to have righteousness in our life. And so because of the fact that we return back to the Lord, now all of a sudden we've got a whole group of people that are unified together to reach the world. In fact, you know what I could do if I had a full list out there of people that are dedicated to the gospel, that are dedicated to reaching the lost, that are dedicating to helping the poor, dedicated to giving their lives for serving Jesus Christ? Do you have any idea what we could do in this church? And this is what it's talking about, the unification of all this faithful and steadfast love together. And some people say, well, you know what, Chad? I don't do it with the church. I do it on my own. You know, you could be a small farmer and take care of your crop, but if you want to be a farmer that harvests a lot, you're not going to be able to do it alone. And so one thing that happens out of this, the second thing is there's a unity We all pull together. We all work together. We all give our gifts and our talents to reach the lost. And uh, God is calling the church, um, God is calling the church to be unified in reaching the lost. 
You say, well, man, I want revival. I want the lost to be one. And the way that the lost are one is because we are revived. Our purpose is revived. Our talents are put together. Our talents are cultivated. Our talents and our gifts are united in reaching a goal for Jesus Christ. And when that happens, guess what you have? You have a revival where people are getting saved. You say, well, Chad, you need to, um, you need to pray to bring people in the doors so people will get saved. And people will get saved if you bring them in the doors. Well, you know what? God has called a people, a group of people to bring people to the, to the church. God has called us to work together to build a harvest. Now, how can we build a harvest if we don't have people that are planting seeds? If people aren't out there working for the harvest, how will we ever grow as a church? And you say, well, how do we do that? Uh, one of the first things you do is you sign a sheet uh, that says, I'm ready to do it. And that's why I've got a sheet out in the front, because God is ready to move. God has been working toward this for several years to get to this point where we're ready to go out and win the harvest in church. I'm just asking you today to, to return to the Lord. You say, well, man, I wasn't gone. You know, some of us have taken vacations from the Lord. Some of us have taken time away from the Lord to go do a lot of other things. And when I say return to the Lord, what I'm saying is make time in your schedule for the Lord. Make time in your schedule to do the work of the Lord. Make time in your schedule and you say, well, man, I'll do it one day, Chad. One day I'll do it. But no, the Lord is saying the day is today. There may not be a tomorrow. We're all going to answer for what we did with what God has given us and who we are. And everybody here has a call and a purpose and a gift and a ministry. And God is calling us to, to use that for His kingdom. God's calling us to be revived as a church. God's calling the, in fact, in Nehemiah he says He wants to revive the bricks of His building. He wants it to be built again. He wants it to be powerful in this world. And you say, well, man, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is the church. The Bible says that if those people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I will restore your land. The problem with the world is us. We've got to call out for God to revive. If you're waiting for um, the lost to say we need God, you're going to be waiting forever. What we need is people to begin to call out and say, we need God. You need to get a hold of that hope. In fact, can I tell you, I'm so full. That nugget filled me up so much this week. It filled me up so much that I don't feel like we can lose. I don't feel like we can lose. I feel like we have an army that could defeat anybody. I don't feel like there's anything that can stand in the way of the church. All I see is victory, church. All I see is victory over the enemy. All I see is hope. All I see is revival. All I see is God's people raising up. In fact, let me ask you this question. When you think about our nation, how you think about our nation tells me a lot about where your hope is. Because if you think our nation was great and will never be great again, Okay, that tells me that you don't have the hope living in you of God. Because I actually think we could be better today than we've ever been. I think we can have a greater revival today than we ever have had. I don't think 200 years ago the Puritans were the greatest thing ever, and we can never do what they did. I think God can do more. 
I think tomorrow is better than yesterday. And church, if you don't think that way, then the enemy has taken your hope away. The enemy has completely removed all hope from you. And what I'm telling you is, tomorrow is better. Hope is in His presence. If you get in His presence and you find that nugget of hope, trust me, there's more where that came from. Trust me, that hope will take you to the end of your life. That hope will will make you every day seek out the presence of God, what He wants to do today, not yesterday. God wants to do more tomorrow than He did yesterday, church. And we've got to be filled with that hope. Stand to your feet. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Man, some of you need to get in the prayer room with me. Oh, that reminds me. I I forgot all about that. Uh, We have decided that Tuesdays, Tuesdays are going to be our days to really intercede for our nation. Hallelujah. How many think we should intercede for the nation? We've been in the prayer room. I'm there every day from 4 to 6 p.m. Bob is there on Thursday nights for a group prayer meeting starting at 7. And then um, Bob is also there on Tuesday night starting at 7. And uh, church, we're just filling that prayer room, praying for our nation. We're praying for um, revival in our nation. We're praying for our nation to awaken. We're praying for our nation to have a real revival. How many believe that? How many? uh, Your hope is not so low in your meter right now that you can't believe that God doesn't want to do great things in our nation. That God doesn't want you say, well, wait a minute. Is that a Democratic revival or a Republican revival? See, I, I heard what you were thinking. Because I don't really want to be involved in a Republican revival, or I don't want to be involved in a Democrat. I'm talking about revival. I'm talking about God waking people up. I'm talking about people excited about getting in the presence of God. I'm talking about people excited about studying the Word. I'm talking about people getting excited about getting up in the morning and doing something good for God. I'm talking about people getting up in the morning and wanting to show their love to a world that's dying. I'm talking about people getting up in the morning and wanting to give what they have to help other people. Hallelujah. How many think we need a revival? And church, I want to get in His presence. Tuesdays, we're going to be fasting. You say, well, man, I don't know if I can fast the whole day. Well, maybe you can fast, you know, McDonald's for lunch. I don't know. Maybe one meal. But we're going to be fasting every Tuesday. Election day is on a Tuesday. Every Tuesday, it seems like the, the you know, the um, debates. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to focus on our nation. We're going to say, God, you take our nation. Whatever you want to do, Lord, God, restore hope to our nation. Lord, pour your spirit upon our nation. So Tuesdays are going to be our day. We're going to be praying for our nation. And on the Tuesday of the election, I'm actually just going to vote. And I'm going to spend the rest of the evening here. And so I would like to fill that prayer room on that Tuesday with people just crying out to the Lord for our nation. I don't know what God has planned for our nation. I don't have to know. In fact, the last verse of that psalm, you know what it says? verse says righteousness will go before him and prepare the way for his steps that means God is going to lead us God is going to guide us God wants to bring revival God wants to pour his love God wants to pour it upon this nation he wants to pour it upon your family pray for it don't stop you say well man my family's done a lot of bad things God wants to pour his love on them God wants to pour his spirit on them God wants to embrace them again God wants to see them coming from afar and say, look and celebrate. Here they come. They're coming back. 
God's not holding against them all the things they did. He wants to embrace them in righteousness and love them. We need to pray that way. We need to know who God is. Quit thinking so much about who we are. It's who He is is who we pray to. He's perfect. He's loving. He's good. He's righteous. He's holy. Hallelujah. All right. Let's pray. Just find a place to pray and worship. Hallelujah. If you need prayer, that's what we're here for. Never given your heart to the Lord. Today's the day. You can do it during service. You can do it after the service. You can find me later. But uh, give your heart to the Lord. If you've not done it, today is the day. Hallelujah. Find a place to pray. one more quick word. Uh, When you preach the gospel, one thing you don't want to do is you should always have application to every message, which means we don't just hear the message, we apply it to our lives. Do it. Uh, James says, don't be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And uh, so I just want a couple things I didn't mention about this leadership training program that I have. Uh, We will be going through the Word. I really want to work with you on your prayer life, too. That'll be part of it. Uh, And then also want to plug you into doing ministry work. But uh, one thing I didn't stress was if you have... schedule is tight we're going to work that out it's going to be one hour per week we're going to work out a schedule that works out for you and uh, we're going to do it for just just prepare to set aside a year and one hour a week and if you are a parent and you and your wife or you and your husband would like to attend you have children we're going to try to find a way to make that work out too don't be pushed away if you feel like you don't have somebody to help you with your kids that night. We'll try to work that out too. Because I really want to see this church put into action what we preach today. Was You say, well, can I just come up and you lay hands on me and it's done? No, we have to apply things in our life. We have to actually do it. But if we can do it, we can do what God's called us to do and promised to equip us with our, His Holy Spirit to accomplish it. Man, we're going to see this place is going to be like a fruitful land, man. We're going to see so many lives changed out there because we got our stuff right in here. And that's what God's calling us to do. So don't be afraid if you're a teenager, if you're middle-aged, if you're older, if you have kids, uh, if you're at a level where you really don't know the Word that well. Or if you're at a level where you know it extremely well, I need you in that group. Because we want to launch you in ministry. And you say, well, I'm not ministry type. We're all the ministry type. The Bible says we're a priesthood of believers. All believers are called to do the work of ministry. How many believe that? Hallelujah. Let's do it, church. Let's do it. Let's be committed. Let's be committed. Can everybody say that?
Lord, I love you so much, Lord God. I pray that you would move upon this church, do mighty, powerful things, God. Fulfill your words, Lord God. You've spoken your word into individual hearts, Lord God. Lord, accomplish it. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Everybody said, Amen.